Hello and welcome to Combo Chain. It's a JRPG Games Club podcast. I am Paul M. Davis, and in this episode we are going to be doing a Valkyrie Profile. And uh, who am I here with? Hello, it's Fletcher. I'm back. Welcome back, Fletch. How are uh, you doing? How did you like this? I liked it quite a bit. It was pretty. It's always been on my radar, but I never played it back in the day. I actually just came across it I, a few months ago. I was setting up a like Raspberry Pi emulation machine. Nice. And just obtaining some random JRPG ROMs, and I started playing. I, I opened up the PSP Valkyrie Profile Lenith one and was just immediately taken with it. And so that's the version that I played. Is that the version you played or did you play the original? I played the PS1 release because it's what I still have a copy of. What? What's your background with this game? So I played this when it was contemporary and X of mine actually loaned it to me because a bunch of us around college would just pick up. This was roughly Square's big period on the PS1. So each of us would just get different JRPGs and we would all swap them around as we completed things. And occasionally you were the one who picked up something really slim, a Threads of Fate or whatever. That one... Not a lot of people finished, but Valkyrie profile was something that got hung on to a lot. And it first really put Triace onto my radar. You cut not Fletch. No, I said, I just said it. it this oh. is what first put Triace onto my radar. And that was where I stopped. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I've always been, I've been aware that it's been pretty influential, but because I skipped the PS1 era, I did not play it at the time, but definitely uh, you can see it in the battle system. As far as I think the one that comes to mind, the game that comes to mind as being most influenced by it in the battle system is probably Indivisible, which was an enjoyable game, even though like shit has come out. Yeah. Rip to that one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I think that's probably the most like well-known game that is definitely plays like a haunt. So the one a, I was going to ask you about, because I mentioned this when I appeared last on here, how do you think about Lightning Returns after seeing the thing I called it a direct copy of? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting how they... It it definitely feels like an evolution of what they were doing here. I'm convinced, especially with the fact that Lightning is just called the Valkyrie at various parts of that game, that at some phase of development, that was a pitch for a VP3 that they were just not allowed to do and reworked into whatever they were hired for. I think that's very likely. Because the only thing that really changes from this game in terms of the flow of combat, and especially the fact that you are doing 3D puzzle dungeons with platforming and time manipulation and a lot of management of resources, the only real difference is that you just have a solo party member with the occasional guest. Totally. 
I wouldn't be surprised. It's really, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to get a clear understanding of specifically who worked on this game, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a lot of the same people. I imagine it must be just because of how very, I don't want to say incestuous, but very (laughs) interwoven a lot of Triace's productions are. There's a, did you dip into the post-game boss challenge in this, the Seraphic Gate? I did not. We don't have to go too much into it. It's not very interesting, but there are two super bosses in that, which also appeared across most of the Star Ocean games and Radiata Histories. It's a lot of Triace games reused a lot of the same characters because it was just a thing they could do, and then they just tweak it for whatever engine, and boom. That's really interesting. So yeah, if you told me that, oh yeah, it turns out a lot of those same guys are still on there around when... Because I think Lightning Returns was directly before they got bought by the mobile company and have become a soulless husk of themselves. I want to say that was the last hurrah for Classic Triace. It was, I believe, because... Yeah, after that, yeah, they got bought by the mobile company and then put out that notoriously shitty Star Ocean, which, yeah, Faithlessness and Devotion or whatever. I can't remember the name of it, but, yeah, even by Star Ocean standards, and we've talked about Star Ocean on this show before, that one's regarded as being pretty bad. Infamous. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Production of this is interesting in how we both play different versions, but there's really no definitive one you point to. A lot of these games, if they get ported or re-released a lot, you'll generally hear you should play this version or skip this particularly bad. Valkyrie Profile's got a weird saga. So it comes out. The turn of 2000, 1222.99 in Japan. So basically the end of the year. And the original Japanese version is a little rough. So the six months of work localizing it include a lot of quality of life features. And they weren't ported into any other versions because nobody ported the English code. They only had the Japanese stuff lying around. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that's weird that I didn't even really realize until I started doing doing some research for the episode is that the PSP port, which came out seven years later, lacks a lot of the quality of life features that the Eng- English localization of the original game does. And it's bizarre. I think some of it was added into the iOS port of Lenith, but I can't find a complete list on that, probably Mm -hmm. because by the time that they made an iOS and Android port of Lenith, a lot of people were either pirating it to play on mobile already or just had some kind of emulation device. But yeah, in 2006, they called the PSP port Valkyrie Profile Lenith to match the naming scheme of Valkyrie Profile 2 which was named after one of the other three Valkyrie sisters. The talk has always been that 
they wanted to complete this as a trilogy. They wanted to do a Valkyrie profile, Hrist, and just round out that whole saga, but it never came about. And in fact, the third Valkyrie profile game is a very different strategy title with a pretty neat gimmick, but that's for another day. You ever play Covenant of the Plume? No, I haven't. Short version is that it is a tactics game where you have a Valkyrie's feather. Like you stole it from a battlefield where the supernatural was around and you can invoke it to power someone up, just really boost them. They can solo a battlefield or really turn the odds against a boss, but they will literally burn out of life and stop existing after that fight. And on your first run, you basically have to use that to succeed the story. And then on future runs, you can new game plus through and characters you've kept might be stronger and survive. And so maybe you change the course of the story because didn't die at X battle or. And that's how you get replay value and a lot of distinct branches out of that one. It's really interesting. That sounds really cool. Which, which platform does that one come to? DS only. I don't think that's ever oh, been ported wow. anywhere else. Wow. Yeah. Again, it it was the waning days of Triace as a studio, and I don't think it sold amazingly, given that it was a lesser tier JRPG on one of the most pirated systems in history. Right. Yeah, yeah. DS was a weird dumping ground for a lot of The DS was a graveyard for a lot of companies because they thought, this is a big thing. There's a lot of these. What do you mean we sold 12? Right. Yeah, it's crazy because I think for larger JRPG studios, it gave them a place to go when they couldn't really, they didn't really have the resources at the time to kind of transition over to HD development yet. But yeah, the piracy just for the smaller ones that really fucked them. They made a whole video game series about how the R4 was destroying gaming. That's true. Hi, hyperdimension Neptunia. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's weird to go back and look and be like, wow, that franchise was on the DS. It definitely seemed like a place where uh, franchises went to die. Even stranger original creations there. Infinite Space. Mm-hmm. Black Which Sigil. nobody talks about. I really want to do that for the show sometime. I have not messed with it. I know some people who swear by it, but also tell me that you should cheat through it because the combat is soul-crushingly samey for the whole game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe not. (laughs) It's one of those things that, like... I'm just... Oh, sorry. I know people who love it, but none of them ever tell me it's a great game. I just had fun with it. I'm just... I'm pretty intrigued by a a space opera JRPG developed by Platinum. That just... Yeah? Sounds pretty fascinating, but... Yeah. Catch me sometime, and I'll mess with it and see what we can do. Yeah, yeah, we we should mess around with it. So yeah, going back to uh, Valkyrie Profile, you think we, should we move on to the gameplay? We, we should, we should probably switch out. I don't really have much other... I couldn't find any real meaty dev stories on this. I did a little digging, but basically anything came out about the sequel or 
we'd love to do Frist. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a really hard time finding anything about dev the development of this game, too. Which is weird, because that stuff is pretty well documented for the most part now. But doesn't seem to be a whole lot of... Profile has it. always been the also-ran among mm-hmm. a lot of JRP. It's not even the biggest Tri-Ace game, because Star Ocean was this exact same period. Well, Star Ocean 2. Right. Yeah, it may have just... It seems Square during the PS1 era was just constantly publishing, and it does seem to be the also-ran, which is a shame, because I think it's a really great game. And this is one of the final things that a pre-merger Enix put out, actually, in the West. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah, Square would take over the license after this game, but this was still all Enix at the time, who was the publisher for Tri-Ace's titles. Oh, okay, okay. So I was mistaken. That's all right. It's real easy to do that because they're on every other game. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So why don't we move on to the gameplay? Let's do it. All right. Yeah, Valkyrie Profile basically takes place in three different states of being, the like interface of the game. And so the first is basically the overworld, where you're playing as Odin's uh, Valkyrie, Leneth. And uh, your job is basically to recruit Einherjar. How do you pronounce that? Einherjar. Okay. Your job is to produce... Uh, your job is to recruit Einherjar for the coming Ragnarok which is just like basically putting your party together by uh, summoning mortals in a way. You, you have seven days to prepare, and they're not really days. It's implied this might be a much longer space, but cosmic beings and all. Yep. Yeah, basically you have a map view, and you choose to enter a location. You look around and intuit where candidates might be. Or what is this administrative work for the army? You you can fly up to Valhalla, deliver things, no, deliver yeah, yeah. souls. Yeah, just That's like just confused prep for the battle. I, I couldn't think of a better way to sum that up. In yeah, <laughs> yeah. All these kind of all these consume some unit of time, which each day is divided into. And basically, the higher your difficulty level, the more units there are in each day, which technically means that hard is the easiest way for you to play. If you're trying to do it, try to get through the game quickly. It's wild because it goes from 16 on easy, 24 on normal, 28 on hard. So if you are the person who's time crunched, play on hard. The weirdness is the only real difficulty thing that changes it is on hard. Any Ein Harriar you pick up start at level one, but... There are more objectives for event XP. There are more dungeons. And the A ending, which is considered like the the finale, the true ending, is locked out of the easy one. So it's pretty much the only reason not to do hard is if you just really want the extra boost of a couple of characters coming in ahead of levels. It's a strange choice. I, yeah. I've never figured out the difficulty in this game on 
I still think hard is one of the easiest just because of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. I was definitely always crunched on time and I did not play it on hard. It's become my go-to playing on hard. Yeah. The first time I did this, I played it on normal. I got the B ending. And ever since I learned what the mechanics were for a, it's always been like, I know how to play this. And I know how to not run into things that will kill me. So I can easily survive on hard, especially with the fact that you can, if you want, grind infinitely in a dungeon. Time does not advance until you leave a dungeon. So if you can stay a little bit alive. Yeah, you can just keep on grinding away. Yup. Yeah, basically the second gameplay mechanic or way you interact with the game is you basically enter a location to recruit someone. And what is really cool is you're basically shown a series of scenes that tell you about their life and how they died. And once you see that, you get, you're able to claim their soul and you can add it to your, your party or Odin's ranks. And yeah, just having this opportunity to have the backstory of these characters makes them definitely seem like less disposable. The first one or two are very interesting because you're given a lead into these and you're not quite in control of things yet. So you're just seeing a girl die and then you watch a man mourn her and move on with his life and you follow him and then he dies, and that's when you pick him up as an Ein Harriar and take control. <laughs> and once you realize what all these scenes are going to be, it's okay, where's the turn? What happened? How does this end? But the first couple of times, you're just in another person's JRPG until someone wipes. Because they all end badly. They do. They do. Yeah, it's the lost lost flashback approach to uh, building a building. A yeah, party. that would that would be a good descriptor of it. It is just filling you in on the character that you've joined in progress. Hmm. Yeah, maybe the opening of uh, up. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, yeah. One or two of them are. I don't want to say they're on that tier because that's a pretty good masterwork that would be its own solid short film but what mm-hmm. are two of them have a real punch as you see everything crumble around them and i think that narrative is what made them do covenant of the plume because it's basically you choosing whether or not those people have those stories or can you get them all to a conclusion yeah yeah that's interesting yeah i've got to definitely got to ch- check out that game so basically you can keep a party of Ein Harriar with you, but really the ultimate goal is to basically develop and deliver uh, prime souls to uh, Odin. They can be in his, his great Ragnarok party. And when Ragnarok kicks off at the end game, you will be leading all of the people you sent up. They will be available to you as you are on the battlefield. So there is a reason to give them over. It's not like you're hurting yourself. You're actually preparing yourself for the climax. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Which is very cool. And then, yeah, the third way you interface with the game is uh, dungeon exploration. And it basically turns the game into a uh, side-scrolling labyrinth with platforming elements. And enemies are just basically appearing on the field for combat. To, for combat, Enemies basically are just appearing on the field for combat. Should be noted in the U.S. release, it has a really good map function. That, uh, not in the original game. <laughs> that was not in the original game. Or in the remake. Nope. That's the reason I never picked up Lenith was like, I need that map. Yeah, it was a nightmare in some of those dungeons. So this game does have a couple of budget issues. And one of them is that one or two dungeons definitely look identical from room to room. So without a map, it's Mm -hmm. real easy to get lost. Yeah. Yeah, I could not play this game without it. It's, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, you you didn't it. do Lazard Veleth's Tower, did you? No, I did not. <sighs> you enter from the top and descend through floor after floor of this necromancer's lair, and it is all identical with just walls changed for a lot of it. It's oh, hell. God. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely had to hit up the like walkthroughs and facts for a couple of the dungeons. I was like, where the hell am I going? I can definitely see that. But yeah, a lot of the dungeons, they have platforming elements. If you clear those, they'll reward you with treasures or uh, world development, which basically can be items that can be used to uh, send up to Valhalla to uh, supply the troops and buff the armies. And buffing the armies basically allows for new branches in the story or new characters to be found in the overworld. And some of the overworld changes based on if you clear certain dungeons. If you, say, take out the vampire who's menacing the countryside, then maybe different characters don't die if they're not allowed to live longer. And so different people or different events happen in the world. That guy lives instead of being killed as fodder, and suddenly a battle goes differently elsewhere. It's yeah. not it's not completely nonlinear. You're locked into one of three branches at the very end, but the individual ways the game plays out, if you are not going for the guide for ending A, are pretty different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some like basic story beats that you go through. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of room for uh, variation in it within the within that structure.
Yeah, sure. I should also probably mention how combat works, which is... Yes. You have a party of four characters, and they are all mapped to the face buttons of the PlayStation controller. So whoever's in front will be square, X and triangle are the middle row, O is the back. And you set up your four or three with Leneth characters. You then are trying to arrange their attacks and skills in such a way that you are creating the largest chain to multiply damage and break down defense each go. Some characters will get multiple attacks, so you can space them out. Hey, they fire an arrow and you wait so they can land again on the arrow that will keep them in the air juggled. Or casters can get stabs, which might turn spells into stronger versions of a spell, and you want to keep those on them, but... They will also change the timing and spacing. And so it's the longer you stick with a party, the more familiar you will get with all their quirks, the more you can develop them for what their abilities are. Because everyone has, it's a tri-ace game, much like Star Ocean and a lot of things, they have skills they develop and you can buy. And some of them are basically requirements to complete the game, like the one that allows you to survive a fatal hit with one HP one time. Others are just first aid. You level that up more and you have a chance of healing here and there after battle, or it's a, it, there's a lot of risk reward to this. And that's part of how you can screw up and get onto ending C is that if you keep too much stuff for yourself thinking I need to power up over the course of the game. You will eventually lower your evaluation, Odin's judgment of you to zero. And then Ragnarok will happen and there will be a complete crap party and no one gets out of that alive. Right. So you want to prepare people. You want to make them stronger. You want to keep one or two people in your party. Don't send the whole group up at once. But you also can't just continue to hoard all the cool stuff for yourself because Papa Odin does see what you're doing, one eye or not, and he will be furious. Mm -hmm. So there's also the treasure system, which you can transmute treasures into gear for your party or send them to Odin and that can develop into other things. It's there's a lot. Triace was infamous for that at this point, putting way too many systems in that maybe you could have cut one or two safely. Yeah. But it also allows for a lot of variants and there is that. It's a game that I've played multiple times over the years, even if I tend to stick with go for the big thing. I, I should probably do an ending C run someday just to see how much that differs. I've heard it's, boy, you sure fucked up, and the game tells you as much, but <laughs> I don't know for myself what that entails. But yeah, the endings are A, B, and C, B being the average, C being the failure, A being considered the good one. It's a little out there. And go for it. Yeah, and A kind of, A is pretty much... B isn't necessarily a bad ending, but there is a whole bunch of lore and story that you miss. 
Yeah, B is you never question any of the weirdness and you go along with what Odin asks of you and Ragnarok happens. Mm-hmm. And then the cycle the cycle goes how you would expect. The Frost Giants versus the Norse gods. And not everyone makes it out of that. Ending C, I think some I think it's just Loki starts Ragnarok early and betrays you and everything goes to hell. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much what I understood from the stuff I looked at online. The other issue is that for all the replayability, for all we're mentioning multiple routes and development and systems upon systems, and there's an entire post-game dungeon, uh, the Seraphic Gate, which has 10 different completion rewards including the Angel Slayer Blade at the end of it, which is the most powerful weapon by a mile. There's no New Game Plus. Mm -hmm. If your save is in the Seraphic Gate, which you can open by saving at the last save point in the game and then reloading after it's completed, you can't get out. That save will never be allowed to interact outside the Seraphic Gate again. It's just bragging rights. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Seems like maybe it's another idea that kind of got thrown in there, but didn't really get fully realized. I definitely wonder what this game would have looked like if it came out a year later. Yeah. Because it does smack of half-bakedness in a lot of places. (laughs) That's another Tri-Ace thing. thing. We came up with... We came up with too many things and we got as many in as we could. And what did we forget? Oops. Yeah. We're going to have a really interesting battle system. That's really dynamic. We're going to have too many systems and uh, yeah, it's going to be half baked, but I love them for that. Yeah. So do we want to kick off the tale of this uh, tragedy? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the story. I am just going to go through the basic story beats. Yes. Yeah, do sum up, then, sum up what your playthrough did, and then I'll fill you in on where the other branch takes you. Okay, okay. Basically, the game opens up with a young girl named Platina who lives with terrible parents. And her village is falling upon her village falls upon hard times. And she, her friend Lucian finds out that her parents are going to sell her into slavery. So the two kids run away, but Placina inhales the toxic pollen of poisonous flowers and she dies in Lucian's arms. And so that's the opening of it. And then we're taken to Asgard where Leneth awakens and she's tasked by the god Odin with recruiting the for the war with the Vanir and the coming of Ragnarok. And her first recruits are basically the Princess Jolanda and the mercenary Arngrim. Is that pronounced? Yeah, that's that's his name. Mercenary Arngrim. And Arngrim is your first exposure to the fact that Odin wants the most noble warriors, not necessarily the most powerful because Arngrim is a monster of a man, but Leneth 
cannot send him up because uh, <laughs> Odin explicitly goes, this guy's not getting into Valhalla. Fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> he's a shit. He is. He's explicit. He's basically guts from Berserk. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, he he basically embarrasses Jolanda's father. She plots revenge, but gets tur- turned into a monster. They kill the monster, and uh, Lennith claims Jolanda. And then Armgrim basically tries to kill the man responsible, and uh, instead of being arrested, he commits suicide. And that's a lot of that story is why Odin's like, you keep this trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as you progress through the game, Lenith meets Brahms, which is Lord of the Undead, and Odin's enemy. And Brahms possesses her sister, Silmeria. She's also comes across the necromancer, Lezard Valeth, who uh, lures her to his tower. And uh, basically, Lezard has basically been experimenting with half-elven homunculi, half-elven homunculi, that he wants to use as uh, vessels to attain godhood. Lezard basically wants Leneth for himself, but she refuses to cooperate and destroys his experiments. Mystina, which is a sorceress and one of Lezard's, one of Lazard's rifle. One of ugh. sorry, one of Lazard's rivals discovers what's been going on and takes the last remaining homunculus. When he discovers her theft, Lazard freezes her body and basically kills her. Lenneth uh, recruits her, and Odin and Freya basically refuse to ex- accept Mastina into Valhalla. And Darngrim, she remains with Lenneth. And so. Eventually, that's that's pretty much all that you're... I guess you're not even required to see some of that to get the B ending. You just have to not shit the bed. You can skip Lazard's tower, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think you are forced to encounter Brahms briefly. I'm trying yeah. to think about, the, yeah, which, which one of these can you... It's really hard to think about what's the key path in this game? Because as long as you're still throw in some guys at Odin here and there. I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I'm at Brahms, and I did not do uh, Lazard's Tower. It's very duplicitous, and I think it's one of the dungeons you can't get on easy, for one thing. And the first time you go in, you'll do a couple of floors, and there'll be a story event that kicks you out. If you go back, there's a lot more meat on those bones, but it's one of the only places in the game you can say that about. Most of the time, you don't want to revisit somewhere. So let's... How did Ragnarok go for you before I get into the really meaty (laughs) follow-a-guide craziness of A? Ragnarok went, went all right. So... Basically, you fight it. If you're going through the B ending, Ragnarok's fought, Ragnarok is fought at the uh, yeah. Ragnarok Ragnarok is fought at the Jotunheim ice fields, and 
basically under Thor's leadership, you're basically trying to under Thor's leadership, the Veneer are trying to open a path for Leneth to storm the palace and defeat Surt. So at the end of this final area, all the surviving Einhenyar are that all the surviving Einhenyar that she sent to Valhalla rejoin your party. And so you fight past uh, Bloodbane, which awards uh, Leneth the sword Leventine. And then you go to the throne room where uh, Cert is there. Where Cert's there waiting for you with a flaming sword. I found Cert pretty difficult. He's definitely the most challenging boss on a standard route. Mm hmm. Because they went with, hey, this is the end of the world. Why would we not? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's understandable. But uh, yeah, I was banging my head against that, against him for a while. And yeah, so when you finally take him out, the Acer prevail and the eternal reign of Odin and the Asgardians is assured. And Freya puts Lenneth to sleep until she's needed again. But you're really not getting a lot of the story and you're missing out on its origins and a number of other things that I'm sure you're going to talk about in the A. Yeah. requires you to do I think it's only three specific things but you are gated in the order you can do these so you have to there's two ratings one of them is Odin's approval of you which you can see you screw it up enough that's C but there's also something called the seal rating and it's not explained anywhere, and it'll be fluctuating depending on what you do. You want to very carefully manipulate what you send up to Odin and Valhalla to keep this from dropping before a certain point. There are red jewels in the world. I think there are 32 total, and the number of them and the location varies depending on normal or hard difficulty. You need... I want to say, yeah, again, 30 of 32 for this. And I have entirely lost the third thing. I know there's a third thing. I have this whole route written out that I used for planning. But through the course of this, you will run into Lucian from the start of the game, who was kind to the girl Platina. And Leneth doesn't recognize him. He instantly goes, holy shit, Platina, you're alive. Mm. Lucian will later become an Einherjar candidate because 
he is going to get killed in an extermination of the slums. Turns out the guy from the poor village who lost everything did not turn out to become more than a thief. And so this starts Lenneth questioning things because he's, I totally know you. I absolutely know you are a human woman or were once. And she's like, I don't remember that, but I don't remember anything. If you want to send him up at a certain point, because then he will start doing things in Valhalla. And so this will cause the issue where Loki, who is a name I'm sure you recognize from Norse mythology, decides, I've got a plan and a pawn, which is that if I get this dude to play around with the water mirror, a relic that Loki, that Odin has to contact Lenneth in the world of Midgar, then he will distract her. This will be a whole thing. And I can steal some of Odin's treasures. Cool. Mm-hmm. Everyone wins. Lucian does this, gives Lenneth an earring and says, she'll know where the match is. Lenneth is furious about this because you are not Odin. What are you doing using this divine artifact? Loki steals some of the four great treasures and kills Lucian. And the whole thing is used as a scapegoat. It's like, this guy just hucked things to earth. I don't know where the dragon orb's at. <laughs> so Lenneth doesn't find out any of this until the end of the next chapter break. When you get to go up to Valhalla and check your progress and everything. This is when you can, if you follow the hints from this, go to Lucian and Platina's village, find her grave, find the matching earring. This is when you break the seal rating is done. And then Odin's fuck it. My Valkyrie's defective killer and Hrist is summoned. She will take over the body of the Valkyrie, start trying to clear everything up, starts trying to kill your companions because they won't serve this complete zealot. And so we mentioned Mistina in Paul's route. She gets involved as a soul, prevents Lenneth from being destroyed. She is crystallized as a portion of soul. Lazard, who has a creepy obsession with her, is I do have this one half-divine body we could transmute her into. All right, cool. We are completely spitting in the face of Odin, and Odin hates necromancy, hates the undead. It is a perversion of everything his cycle of life and rebirth and decay represents. So... In this route, you team up with a necromancer, the king of the vampires, Brahms, and you fight against Lenneth's sister, Hrist, and Freya to rebel against Odin and do something very different. This whole thing is going on. And meanwhile, at endgame, Loki strikes. Ragnarok goes very differently because instead of it being the Frost Giants and the Norse Valkyries and the Einherjar fighting on a battlefield. Loki starts slitting throats. He tries to make a deal with Surt, and Surt's, fuck you. This is not how this goes. Loki kills them off, so they're out of the picture. And he's now wielding the artifacts of Odin, which he has stolen, 
really changing the balance of power. When you get back up to Valhalla, everything is in flames. Gods are dead. You do not have... (laughs) You don't really have a full party because it turns out you've lost some of those people in the initial conflagration. (laughs) Everything is going wrong. This is so, so much more epic than the other. Than the yeah, it's, route I took. it's very much more involved, and you really have to do these things in order. Because if you lower the seal rating too quick, you might drop yourself onto Route C. You need to start triggering story events in an order that builds all this. And even then, you still have to be sending things up. You just don't want to send the best things, maybe, because you might lose them. For good. But the whole end of this is that Odin dies. Odin dies protecting Freya, in fact, which doesn't go amazing. Various creatures of horrible myth are up there loose, and you fight your way up to Loki on the throne. Each of you is rolling around with two of the four major treasures. And the whole thing is that You are not a Valkyrie anymore. You are something that is against the old order. You are a homunculus containing a Valkyrie's soul that is part elf, part mortal, powered by necromancy and blood magic and everything. But you're also something that can love. And that's what killed Odin because he's bound to this whole prophecy thing. You're something different, and you basically lightning returns again, or prior, you become the Lord of Creation. You become Odin, and you rebuild what Loki has destroyed. You make another world where anyone you bring back are the Einherjar of Lenneth. You have created a new path. And that's the ending. That's very cool. Yeah, it's breaking the cycle, and the second game was a prequel to this, for obvious reasons, and it focused on the second Valkyrie sibling, Silmeria. We don't really mention her much in this, partly because she gets her own game, and partly because she is a captive of Brahms for the entire game. Mm -hmm. Brahms and Odin basically have the biggest beef of all, And he was trying to even the deck by taking the Valkyries out of play. You see how that happens in Silmeria. And so that's why the story of Hrist is a giant question mark that clearly they wanted to tell and haven't. It's a shame that they didn't get a chance to tell that story. I'm very curious to see what becomes of Triace in the next five years. I... I'm not optimistic they will remain open, but I will be curious to see if there is a successor. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens with the. It's really a damn shame that they got bought by a mobile company. And yet they're still freelancing because they've done. I want to say Square Enix was on that Star Ocean as publisher. Let me look. They were. Yeah, so they're still partnering with other people, but yeah, everything since Integrity and Faithlessness has just been the Star Ocean mobile game and remakes of all their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, they've done 
They've done uh, the Star Ocean, Last Hope uh, remaster, and Resonance of Fate remaster. And only one of those is worth your time. Take a guess which. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of weird. It'd be... They're almost well-situated for... Even though Kickstarter games are a dirty word. Well-situated for some of the core developers to just split off and say, hey, we're the people behind these games and we want to... Be fan, get fan funding to make a true follow-up to them, even if they have the serial numbers scratched off. Oh, okay, this might explain a lot. I did not know this. 1999, a lot of Tri-A staff split off and formed Tri-Crescendo under their former sound programmer. And mm-hmm. this company might be where all the talent went, given that they have co-developed a lot of games that you've probably played or heard of, including more than a few of the Digimon World titles for portables. They were working on Blue Dragon, various Smash Brothers games from the 3DS one onwards, a few Mm -hmm. Tales games. And they they did Eternal Sonata, which we did an episode on just, just a few episodes ago. I like that game. I I, don't know why. It's so weird. I can't help but love it. I like it too. (laughs) Dina, who uh, guessed it on that one with me, we we had a lot of fun talking. It's it's a broken game in a lot of ways, but there's just a a lot of... it's, It's also very charming and pretty enjoyable. Also, it has one of the most insane single sentence plots in video games. It's oh, very God. simple, but it's the fever dream of a syphilitic Chopin on his deathbed as a JRPG. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That happened. They yep. made that. It took Anime Chopin. To play. <laughs> <laughs> it's something else, but yeah, try And I believe that they've been involved with a number of tri games since. I don't um, see them credited on anything looking at the list of their titles. Really? Like they did sound until VP2 and then there's nothing Triace. But they Maybe start becoming is, co-developers I'm, for Bandai for level 5. That makes sense. That makes sense. I can definitely see there's definitely some Triace DNA in a lot of the uh level 5 and Tales games, I feel like. Speaking of which, rip in peace level five. Mm-hmm. Indeed. We haven't done any level five games on this show yet. We should probably do The problem do is one. they're very slim games. Yeah. Especially the JRPGs. Like, I had a lot of fun with Fantasy Life, but try describing the plot of that game. You can't. <laughs> I'm going to actually look and see what it is just because I can't remember it. Yeah, it's Dragon Quest Nine, but without any meat on the bones. Oh, yeah, yeah. It turns out things fell out of heaven and you need to fix them. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> I did like Rogue Gal- Galaxy. I've been told that's very good and yet again, just haven't sat down to play it. Probably because I'm the idiot who's been playing Xenosaga for three months and change now. (laughs) 
I need to get on the Xenosaga train. No, you don't. Oh my <laughs> god, I'm about to do two again, and I want to die. Oh my god. I'm just two curious. Is, two is one of the worst JRPGs that is not completely broken in history. Yeah, I'm just so curious, because I really love the Xenoblade games. So, Have you ever played Gears? I have played Gears. Xenosaga is a very clear middle step between Gears and Blade, but the middle of that middle step is one of the biggest missteps I've ever seen a company make. I can't believe Monolith Soft still exists in such a major capacity after it. <laughs> I can't, yeah, Monolith Soft is, it's amazing that they are still around when you think about it. Um, and that they've become a major player for Nintendo. That's not the sort of company it. that you think, yes, you will be key to a lot of our first and second party titles. Yeah, who would have believed that not only would they have really successful, especially because they were bought by Nintendo during the Wii era, they didn't yeah. even want to bring Xenoblade to the US. And now they're like, Seven the support staff. Yeah, 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 totally. They've ported it multiple times. There's three, three different entries. They've all been, well, the first one and two have been pretty successful. And they are like the main support team helping with the development of Zelda games. It's what the hell? How did that come across come about? Yeah, that's right. Monolith was a huge part of Breath of the Wild. I always forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that they from what I've read they played a much bigger role in it than even Nintendo's really acknowledged because Nintendo basically went to them and was like, we don't know how to build an open world game. So I got to give them credit. I'm still impressed. They managed, even if it required a new 3ds to get Xenoblade running on a portable smoothly. Oh, I know. I know. I played. I've played it on every platform that's come out on, and it's it's not really that much of a downgrade from the Wii on the 3DS. But the Wii was a platform that was very well supported by art design, and yes. if you had a good art design, that game would upscale beautifully, mm-hmm. as seen by Dolphin. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true, and if you didn't, it looked. Like Oh, yeah. Let's not like, talk about the Baroque port to the Wii. Oh, God. I, I didn't even know about that. Yep. Hey, I should see if they ever announced that they're going to localize that new remake of the Saturn version. Nope. Doesn't look like there's anything since it's coming to Switch. <laughs> Oh, it came out on November 12th, eShop only. This explains a lot. Okay, that might be why I heard nothing about it. There was no physical copy for me to import. Hmm. I'm glad that released. It just got dumped on on the eShop, like a lot of things do. To be fair, a budget remake of your original Saturn version of a game you remade once and improved is very Valkyrie profile. (laughs) that's true do you have any final thoughts to wrap up wholeheartedly discussion of the Valkyrie profile absolutely play this game at least once Mm -hmm. doesn't even matter which ending you get 
just mess around with this and enjoy the writing, the world, the sheer amount of things that you could play in this and be amazed that nobody really ripped it off except Triace themselves until 2020 with the kickstarted game Indivisible, as was mentioned. Yeah, it's really amazing. One of the things that one of the things that I, I really enjoyed this game, even though I be by taking the B route, I missed out on a lot. But yeah, one of the things that definitely struck me about it is just how weird and experimental it is, and it just kind of made me for an era when everything wasn't so locked down and codified, and JRPGs could be way more experimental in their systems and the way they told narratives and whatnot. You know, it really feels this is a podcast devoted to JRPGs. So clearly, <laughs> we love the genre, but it definitely feels like it has stacked outside of the indie space. You really wouldn't get something this experimental nowadays. For what it's worth, I think there is a lot of experimentation coming back again. I don't know how successful all of it is, but I think Falcom especially is probably the king of that B-tier RPG right now. Oh, yeah. From what I have been told, Tokyo Xanadu was basically them attempting to train up a next generation of staff, which is why it feels like a overcooked combination of East gameplay and trails of cold steel story and world mechanics. It's yeah, that's a really weird one because it definitely feels like a merging between the two with a little persona sprinkled mm-hmm. into it. Just as far as, you know, not so much in the mechanics, but the style and narrative of it, but it's really also big- broken as hell in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. And yet it's, I am impressed by it, especially since the only version you can get now if you buy it is the EX re-release, which they packed that full of content. It has a new half chapter and story scene in between every chapter. The new game plus has a new dungeon in literally every chapter, maybe multiple. So much in that game is wild for how much effort was put into it in what is clearly a game that I definitely wonder how well it did because I'm coming to the end of it now. A buddy of mine has told me I should definitely stick with it, but I get the sense it might have this whole unfinished sequel hook thing from how he's talking about it. Mm. I'm real. I'm real curious about that, especially if they did that and then still haven't followed up on it. Yeah. Yeah, it it does seem a weird outlier. I mean, um, we got two East games since that came out. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's interesting you brought up Falcom. I, I have not played it yet, but I just downloaded the new East, and it sounds like they are like experimenting with the formula in the new one. Said buddy of mine has, he literally took off all this week from work. We're in US release week for that game when we record this. Mm-hmm. and he's been playing it all week. He's at something like 70% completion right now. Oh, wow. Because he just 
decided not to go into work and do that. And it's like, all right, <laughs> all right, man, have fun. Wow. That's pretty glad, impressive. Glad he's enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's really funny because he had never played a Falcom game until the pandemic hit and he gave up booze and just really went hog on JRPGs. And he went through every single trails game. Oh, wow. The English released East games. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. He's literally running out of JRPGs. He's playing more of them than I am. (laughs) He's going to get to the point where I have to give him the demon rush soon. Because it's all he'll have left. (laughs) Is he working on, has he gone to Idea Factory yet? He hasn't. He has also joked that that is the day he eats a bullet is when he starts doing all the Neptunias in order. (laughs) <laughs> I keep telling him they're okay, but he I don't think he's listening. They're good. They're yeah. good. I like them. I, I figure uh, if I'm going to get him in, I'm going to get him in on Death's End Request, and then we'll just loop back. <laughs> nice. Cool. Should we wrap it up here? I can't think of much more to add unless we're going to start talking about the whole rest of this franchise, and I didn't prepare That sounds good. Maybe we can save that for a different time. Cool. Thanks so much for joining me, Fletch. Absolutely. Always happy to be here, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, you're always uh, welcome on the the virtual table. Is there anything uh, you'd like to plug? You can just find a quick selection of all my works at hellscaper.com. It's a one-stop shop for podcasts, writing, etc. projects I work on. Yep, and he's got a bunch of them, and all of it's very good. So I highly recommend Thanks. it. And as for me, you know, it's uh, just the usual stuff. You can uh, rate and review us on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, as it is. So that'd be great. You, If you're into uh, Shin Megami Tensei and Persona, you can check out the side game or could you set you could check out the uh sister podcast which is mega 10 marathon and uh, yeah we have a patreon at mirror image studios and uh, cool thank you so much fletch oh wait i forgot i think i forgot to say what the url for the patreon is and the uh, url for the patreon is at mirror image studios so yeah thanks for thanks for coming on fletch absolutely and I will see you next time, all of you, because we know I'll be back. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.